and welcome to an all-new episode of the Three Bid League podcast. On the back end of the show, Matt and I will take a look at some of the big games that happened last weekend. But to kick things off, I am joined by the voice of the Friday 10 on ESPN2, Mike Corey. Thank you for joining me, Mike. That's all. What's going on, man? Well, it's a great day to talk Atlantic 10 basketball, especially with someone who at least to me, your voice has become synonymous with a lot of the biggest games in this conference, calling those Friday night games for a long time. And now you're doing some weekend games on USA as well. So we get, we get a double dose here. Yeah. I get a, I get a lot of action in that's for sure. I know it's, uh, I appreciate it very much. Um, it, it's awesome. I love doing the Friday nights. I love doing the A-10 period. It's just, it's a great league and yeah, being able to kind of move on to do the uh, Saturday game and sometimes uh, and or Sunday as well. Um, it's been fun, but you know, you get to know the league, get to know the players, get to know the coaches. Uh, so it makes it a little bit easier, um, when you're doing sometimes back to back and multiple games in a weekend, but, um, I love it. So we'll, we'll just start things off here. Just kind of tell everyone about your journey into this job. Why did you want to go into broadcasting? What kind of brought you to, to college basketball more specifically? Yeah, it's uh, it, it goes back a long time. I mean, probably when I was in ninth grade, I uh, I kind of knew uh, this is what I wanted to do. I was, I was pretty fortunate. I mean, I love sports and I was I played basketball a lot growing up. I wasn't, you know, a great player or anything like that. And, you know, but I'd be in the stands during like, say, the, the JV game, you know, or the varsity game. I was on JV and pretending to like broadcast the game. And I remember one day my buddy was like, hey, you're going to be a broadcaster. And I'm like, yeah, like, you know, it just kind of hit me. I'm like, that, that would be great. You know, I love doing this and, um, you know, I, I enjoy sports and I, you know, want to stay involved. And so from probably like ninth grade on, I felt like, yeah, this is what I want to do. And I was fortunate enough to go to UMass um, uh, for my uh, schooling, which had a student radio, student TV, student newspaper, got a lot of experience and stuff there. My uh, freshman year was the final four with uh, John Calhoun. Marcus Camby, so couldn't get any better than that. Like, what a great way to start your college career. And uh, just kind of took it from there, you know, and um, was very fortunate, worked really hard, and uh, got the job at the University of Delaware uh, as the uh, professional voice of the Blue Hens right after I graduated, like a month and a half later, um, and did that for for good 13 years. Um, All the while working in TV, um, getting a couple of games a year here and there for a long period of time, and then I finally... Uh, really kind of just kicked into the high gear and like 2008, 9, 10, and then 11 is when I got hired by ESPN. So um, it's been, it's been a long journey, but a, a fun one. And uh, I'm just you know thrilled to be able to do what I love to do. And um, yeah, it's just no regrets and I'm very fortunate. Yeah. And your resume throughout that time is pretty extensive. Five different Olympics. You're listed as having uh, been a broadcaster for NFL Europe at one point. What's, I don't know if I, I don't know if I want to ask you about the best or just the wildest event that you've ever been a part of broadcasting. Yeah, there. Thanks. I mean, there. That was a pretty cool experience, I and mean, I got to go over NFL Europe a couple of times. So it was over in Amsterdam. We did games in uh, Frankfurt and uh, Dusseldorf, uh, you know, Germany, and uh, it was it was pretty amazing. Um, but prior to that, um, I got to go and do the Olympics uh, for the first time in two thousand and six. Um, in Torino, um, Italy, uh, on the radio for Westwood One Radio. That was kind of my first big, like, you know, experience and unbelievable thing that I never would have, you know, dreamed about doing. And, and I'll tell you, that was probably one of the most, uh, that was like one of the best experiences I've ever had over there for like three and a half weeks. And 
all uh, the people I met and got to broadcast speed skating, short and long track, um, recorded it and played back highlights uh, all over the country and all the radio stations across the country. It was part of these uh, shows that they did every night for two hours where they, you know, ran back the races and, and stuff in addition to all the other Olympic events. So it was really, really cool. Um, and that, that was just a great experience. So yeah, that among many, many other games and bowl games and, you know, some college basketball games that have been awesome and multiple different sports. I mean, it, it can kind of go on and on, but um, that one probably was like the first biggest, you know, thing I've done. And, and I always remember that. How difficult is it just to give people the proper descriptions of speed skating on the radio? It's not like basketball where you can, Give a pretty you can paint a pretty beautiful picture. Oh, player A passes to player B, 18 footer good. Or baseball, which I personally still believe is incredible on the radio. Speed skating's got to be pretty difficult. Yeah, it, it was, but it you know it wasn't. I think when you're when you're in the broadcast world and somebody gives you an assignment or something that you maybe never done before, it's like with my you know just kind of personal who I've always been. You know, you work hard to figure it out. You, you go to great lengths to, to get the information, the research. And, and I did, I talked to different, you know, broadcasters, um, Dan Jansen, the former unbelievable speed skating great was doing the TV right next to me, uh, worked with him, asked him some questions, comments, learned the language, listened to the former guys who did it the year, the Olympics before me went online, got the rules and then it was radio. So there's a lot of description. So, you know, it's, so-and-so going around the first turn or his time is uh, 20 seconds better than the leader right now. You know, all that stuff was appearing on my screen in real time. Like it was just a fast and furious thing that you just kind of got, you know, really into. And I don't know, I, I just, I can't even describe how we were able to do it. The short track speed skating, I had an analyst. So we were doing that and that's a real crazy event. Guys falling down, getting out of the race, uh, changing the winners and losers at the end of the race. where they go to the monitor and review stuff. It's really pretty interesting so you just learn you figure it out you get excited um and you know we just took it from there so like, like anything else i actually did some uh stuff up in the mountains you know and we interviewed different uh people in those events and you just tried to you know bring it to the fans as best you could but um it, it was it was definitely different um but i think like a lot of people if you're in this world or in this field you would figure it out and you'd work hard to try to do the best you could and, uh, and that's all i did and you mentioned in that the sometimes things get changed in the monitor in all your time as a broadcaster have you ever had a great call that's been erased by a review change uh, it one that comes to mind for me just as a college basketball fan brian anderson on the call when virginia sends the elite eight game to purdue against purdue to overtime he calls the shot a game winner by mama d diakite and it's an incredible call until you realize oh it just tied the game so have you ever had one where you feel like a great call got lost because of because of a flip on the monitor? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one because, you know, and I know he came right out and was like, hey, you know, this this kind of stuff happens. And, you know, it does. Like there's not one broadcaster who's ever been perfect in anything they've done. And uh, I'll go back to my first uh, ever uh, game on the radio. I believe it was when I first got hired in Delaware. And and now that you brought that up, I haven't mentioned this in a long time, so I hadn't thought about it, but the game went to overtime. It was Delaware and William and Mary. And uh, I remember like what happened was, is remember each team gets the ball at the 25 and they get an opportunity to score. So um, William and Mary had went first and they scored or whatever it was. And then Delaware went and they scored and they tied it up. Well, when we reversed it for the second overtime, Delaware went first. 
So in my mind, I was kind of thinking like, oh, they had been like the home team per se. You know what I mean? So it's like they went second. They got the touchdown. So when they scored their touchdown or whatever it was to begin the second overtime, they took the lead. And I was like, Delaware wins it. I'm like, you know, it's unbelievable. And my partner was like, oh, oh, oh no, wait a minute. Just remember, William and Murray's got their opportunity coming up next. I'm like, oh, that's right. And like, and I, I felt so bad. Like, I was like, Mike, uh, like, you know, yeah, that, it goes Delaware first, then William and Murray. Like, what are you talking about? You know what I mean? And it was like, and it was unbelievable. I mean, it was way back, you know, so it's like 1999, you know, at this point. Um, so, there's no social media. There's no 4,000 people tweeting at me. Like, I can't believe you, you messed this up, but it did come out in the paper, you know, and it said like, you know, first broadcast, you know, from like, yeah, not bad, but you know, kind of had a little snafu at the end. And um, I remember that. And it's just like, you know, you gotta sometimes mess stuff up, you know, before you learn and you get better. And I'm glad it was early enough in my career. I never really had anything like that again. Um, in fact, never did. The only thing that I may have had, or I've had a few times, which is fine, is that you call a game a game winner, or it's it's over, or, you know, and you the buzzer, and that's what it was. And then it goes back, and it, you know, it's it's um, it's changed. So the case of point was the last week's game, or two weeks ago, whatever. Um, say Bonaventure and Duquesne. Uh, they uh, they were down three. They got fouled at half court. Guy makes the first free throw, misses the second. His guy rebounds the ball, throws it to his teammate. He throws it up and in. Boom, game tied, right? We're going to overtime. And so that's what, what I saw. And that's what the official called it. He called it good. So I say, yes, it's good. We're tied, you know? And I'm like, but now they're going to go review it and make sure. And, and that's okay. Because then they go review it. They're like, nope, ball is still in his hands. Uh, no time left. Uh, Duquesne wins. And that's okay. That's not messing it up. That's calling it the way it was and the way the referee officiated it. And they're going to go back and take a look at it. I do the same thing in football. Like when you see a flag down in the end zone and a guy throws it into the end zone, he catches it for the touchdown. I'm like, you know, Cronin's got it. Touchdown, you know, and so-and-so leads it or whatever. I finish the call. And then I go, but there is a flag down. You know what I'm saying? So you don't, you know what I mean? Like you don't like say um, like, Oh, he didn't get it because he threw the end zone and it's a touchdown. I mean, that's legitimately what happened. So until you wait and get the call, then you can go back and say, oh, actually, it's no good. It was pass interference. But I like to have that just in case the fire was on the other team. And now you've got a real touchdown call. So you got to I like to do that. I like to make the call. And then, you know, you go back and see what happens. So, yeah. Yeah. And that Duquesne Bonaventure example was more what I was asking about. You, you ended up giving me a more interesting story than I was hoping for with the, the Delaware football thing. But it's funny you bring that up. I still remember that play. I'm in the arena under the opposite basket. So I didn't have a great angle at it. And Duquesne doesn't really show many replays in the arena. So all I have to figure out if this game is going to go to overtime or not, is I'm literally looking across the court at you and John Giannini, who are calling this game, just looking to see if there's any kind of like facial expression indication whatsoever that might clue me in. Cause I knew you guys had a monitor. Yeah, well, and, and we and I knew that they were going to call it good because the last thing they want to do, I think, is is you know, wave it off and say no, and then you go to the monitor because this is what's the thing in, in any sports, football, basketball, the call on the court is so important because if you go to the monitor and you don't have indisputable video and evidence enough to either you know, overturn the call, then the call on the court is what needs to stand. So I think they like the way I saw it. Everybody else was like, "This is good." And then you can go to the monitor and go, oh, I see it's still in his hand. And then you change your call. 
if they didn't have enough evidence for whatever reason, the call in the court is good. It's a tie game and we're going overtime. So the call in the court is very important. I had one two games ago where ball went out of bounds off of a team. And then one guy goes, um, for the sake of argument, we'll use St. Bonaventure Duquesne. Oh, it's Duquesne ball. And then he went like this to go review it. Prior to that, the two officials came together and they said, no, 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 no. They talked it over and it was like, wait a minute, it's, it's St. Bonaventure ball. So they pointed St. Bonaventure ball and then they went to the monitor. You know how important that was? Because they changed what the call was on the court. So they say, no, it's actually St. Bonaventure ball. Okay, now they go to the monitor. Do they have enough to confirm or overturn that call? If they do, great. If they don't, it's St. Bonaventure ball. So that's how important it was for them to make that quick decision right there to say, no, no, here is what the call we had. Now we're going to go review it. So little stuff like that um, I've learned, and I think it's great. And I, I try to develop actually relationships with the officials. So they come over and they tell us what's going on and we're not left in the dark. And uh, I feel like we're kind of all on the same team. You know what I mean? So just to broadcast that for you there. Yeah, and I mean, not necessarily that because that plays a little more cut and dry. The basket's either good or it's not. But when you're dealing with like these double technical situations, that play-by-play guy being able to get the right answer from the refs is so important for us at home. There was, I remember a game, it was, I think it was Dayton Loyola, not the one you just had, but a few weeks ago on a Tuesday night where there was a situation like that. And you could tell the ref just didn't give a good descriptor. And we were still sitting around days later trying to adjudicate what happened because no one knew. It's tough. I have a one sheeter that I keep in front of me with all these rules and regulations and stuff from college basketball. Um, and what the thing is like uh, class A technical foul, class B, you know what it is, two shots, ball, um, you know, flagrant one, two shots in the ball for the team. Like, I mean, I just, I review it. I go through it with the officials and then, you know, again, it all kind of comes from learning, right? Sometimes you have the calls and you know what it is. And sometimes you get a weird one that you don't. And, uh, you know, you're never going to get to know everything, right? I mean, there's always a wild amount of stuff. I mean, I'll just give you a simple little one here, not to make it a big officiating rules thing, but like this is the kind of stuff the officials have to deal with. And then their bosses come down on them. Like if a player steps in the backcourt, you know, it's a backcourt violation. Well, if you step right on the half court line, the other team gets the ball at midcourt and they have 30 seconds on the shot clock and they get them back. If your player actually steps over the line in the backcourt, they get the ball, what's called the 28 foot line, a little farther into the front court, and there's only 20 seconds on the shot clock. Like simple stuff like that. Now, hopefully, they'll just change that rule to say, hey, any backcourt violation, when you step on the line or over it, you just get the ball in the front court at the 28, and there's 20 seconds on the shot clock for the opposing team because they're already in the front court. They just have to work on some of those rules things, but that's something that I've learned and I know. So if that happens, I could say like why it happened. You know what I mean? And that's a that's not a major difference there, but it is for the officials. And you know, that's why it's very tough to officiate. Their boss might come down on them and say, you know what? What are you doing? He should have had it at half court. He didn't step on the you know what I mean? So it's it's crazy stuff out there these days. Yeah. And so you talk about your preparation and learning these rules. Now on this show, we've only had team specific broadcasters on. We've had Jay Burnham, the great play-by-play guy over at your alma mater of UMass. Matt Martucci does a terrific job at St. Joe's, but they have a different, they have to go about their job differently than you do. And so you look at like this week, you've had VCU multiple times already this year. I know you've had Richmond at least once, but let's pretend it's like early January. You have these two teams for the first time. How are you going about the preparation and making sure that you're, that you know what you need to know about these two teams? Like, what are you trying to ask of the coaches? Do you get to see practice? 
How does that kind of work? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. Uh, first off, uh, uh, let me give uh, my uh, thoughts and prayers out to Chris Mooney and uh, family. And, uh, you know, he's just an unbelievable guy with the heart surgery coming up this week as he stepped away from the team, as we all know, um, to, to deal with that. I just want to wish him all the best. I mean, he's, he's a phenomenal guy, a phenomenal coach. He's done an unbelievable job there. I've been able to, you know, talk to him on and off the court, um, had dinner at, out with him after games before, um, you know, just – you know, I don't think sometimes people and the fans have enough um, understanding or respect what coaches do behind the scenes and the life that they have too. I mean, he has a life, he has kids, and you know, he he manages a lot and balances a lot. And Richmond's an unbelievable school; it's hard to get into, you know. And and uh, you know, think about what he's done there. Like, there's seven different conference champions in the A10 in the last seven tournaments that we've contested. So, of course, everybody wants to win it all. And if they don't, they're like, "Oh, what's going on here? Like, what's going on? Like, it's damn hard. <laughs> I mean, it's unbelievable." So. Just want to give him a ton of credit. Um, I know he's going to get through it, and he's going to be awesome. Um, and, uh, you know, just, again, prayers out to him. So I talked to him. You know, I talked to him before the games. I talked to him in the offseason. I actually did that with all the coaches prior to media day this year. Had a little bit of extra time. I was like, you know what? Let me get ahead of it. Talk to them. Learn about their team, their players. Get some stories down. Talk to the sports information directors. Um, ask for pictures, video. Uh, write in the stats in the previous year. Write in the upcoming games. I mean, I do a lot of that, um, and that's kind of how I prepare. Then you get to know teams and the coaches and their background, and it stays on my sheet. Then I update it for the next year, you know, and you develop relationships, and you get to know them. And um, that's what's been most, um, you know, pleasurable for me, you know, is getting to know these guys, and they're not just the coach, you know. I mean, uh, and the players, too, um, which will change hands now a lot more often with the transfers and all that. But you know, you get to see the same players over and over and you remember, remember their stories and their family and what they like to do outside of basketball. And that's what we try to bring out um, the best we can. Not always in every game, not always do we have the time for it, but they're people. Um, and, and we need to, to tell that to the fans and the people watching that it's more than just basketball and X's and O's and, and uh, who's down screaming and who's getting over the top of a high ball screen. Yeah. And it's, it's an interesting thing. As I mentioned to you when we when I first got to meet you, you can always tell the difference in preparation for some of these announcers. You're popping in, you're doing two A10 games a week. There's a lot of guys doing one or two where you can just tell, like, oh, this person kind of they they looked at the roster the night before and we won't name names, but you are clearly a guy who doesn't do that. You really put in your homework and you can tell from the first minute of the broadcast that you know what you're talking about. You know who these guys are coming off the bench it's not a conversation of oh hey ace baldwin's really good and tyler burton's great too so you should just watch them yeah i appreciate it um uh, thank you and, and i try and we do the best that we can uh, with you know the information that we have and the time that we have to get ready for it i mean you know look at not every game you know i'll be honest not every game have i been able to do or um do it the way i kind of traditionally always like to do it i mean sometimes you got to be comfortable at being uncomfortable <laughs> you know what i mean like uh, do I want to do three games in a row, four games or five? Not necessarily, to be honest with you, if I had a choice, um, but don't want to not do it. I mean, I appreciate the opportunities. I want to do as much as I possibly can. But yeah, sometimes you do need a little break or I do like to go to make sure I go to the shoot arounds before every game so you can see both teams, talk to both coaches, um, get a few more you know, bits of information from the sports information directors that we can use on the broadcast, um, meet with my analyst uh, before the game, hang out, have a bite to eat talk to the producer and I still do all that stuff as best as I possibly can, 
But yeah, there's going to be times where you're not, you know, fully able to do it the way you like to do it. And you just have to adjust. Um, there's a lot of information out there. There's so much stuff. Sometimes you got to dial it back. I used to go crazy, crazy with prep. You can't have your head in your notes, you know, the whole broadcast is then you miss what's going on on the court. So I've learned that too. So um, yeah, I, I appreciate what you said, but yeah, it's, it's challenging no matter what. Um, but yeah, you try to do your best. And even when I'm not doing the A-10, like I did a lot of the ACC uh, this past year in November, December, non-conference. I don't know those teams as well. Um, I don't know those coaches, players as much or those sports information people or even the broadcast crew I'm working with because we have a lot of new people um, a lot of the times. But I do my best to get to know them, find out the information, give them my thoughts, learn about the players. So you're right. I don't just come on and go, yeah, that guy's really good. Like I need to know a little bit more here. And you've got to say it in a way where you don't kind of alienate your audience. You know what I'm saying? Like, like everybody watching the same Bonaventure Duquesne game, I'll say everybody, but most people, maybe they are dialed into St. Bonaventure. Maybe they do know about Duquesne. Maybe they're huge fans of the program. When I come out and try to say a story, like it's the first time that nobody's ever heard of this. It's like, well, and you know, Mark Schmidt, he's, he's been there for 16 years. Like, yeah, we know that, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, we have to try to come in with something that's a little different or I talked to coach earlier and he said blank, you know, and stuff like that. So it really gives them something that they didn't already know. Like that's my biggest fear is coming in on some games or teams that other people know more about, you know, like if I'm doing NC state and so-and-so where I don't want to disseminate it on the air as if like, I'm telling them something that like, Oh, you didn't know this. And I found out about like, actually maybe they did. And you're the one that's not really, up to speed or haven't been here for 30 years watching this program like we have. So there's a fine line of being able to come on and say it in a way where you're telling people that don't know legitimately, but you're not alienating the diehard fans that are like, no crap, Mike, <laughs> you know what I mean? So um, that crosses my mind too. Yeah. So we'll, we'll pivot into the on-court product. You've talked to the coaches, you've watched the film, you've seen the shoot arounds, you've seen them all play multiple times now in person. I'm going to put you on the spot. Dayton, St. Louis, VCU, who deserves to be the favorite to win the A-10 tournament right now? We're just going with those three, Dayton, uh, VCU, St. Louis. If you, want to, if you want to go bold and give me another answer, I would love it. But I, I assume most people are, are going to go with one of those three at this point. This is, yeah, we just had this discussion on the air. Like I said, seven different teams have won the last seven, you know, uh, A-10 tournaments. And I, I, I hear you. I know those are like the top teams. I'm kind of, it's kind of the way it's shaking out, so to speak, right now. But I'll be 100% honest with you. I don't know if I – and I don't like to – I don't want to say it this way. This sounds like rude, like like trust those teams. Like anybody's liable to beat anybody today. Like, you know what I'm saying? That's what I mean. Like I'm not – like they're not in invincible, if you will, of like not losing a game. And I feel that way about every one of those teams. VCU is not invincible. Uh, they lost St. Bonaventure at home. We saw that, you know, not that St. Bonaventure is not good, but, you know, like that's huge. Not a lot of people go to VCU and win, right? Um, they lost a couple other games maybe that, you know, you want to expect. Same thing with Dayton. Dayton's lost a few games too. And then St. Louis, you know, at times has, has struggled a little bit as well that, you know, some head scratching. They're all beatable, you know, and, and I don't think we're giving enough credit to like Fordham or Duquesne. Um, or even LaSalle or whatever, like, like I'm just mentioning a few other names, like Fordham's on fire. <laughs> okay. Like they're won over 20 games. Ever one of their best seasons in their history. Um, I don't care who they played. Okay. I don't care. Like to say, Oh, they're non-conference, whatever. 
You know how hard it is to win games no matter whether you should be beating a team or not. And then they get in the league play and they are winning and they are beating teams. Yeah, there's a couple they've lost by a lot of big margin, but it doesn't matter. I don't put anything past the team that has confidence that's one over 20 games that's in the top four that was picked to be like, you know, down at the bottom. And Duquesne, I'm sorry, they were picked last. They're like in fifth right now. Uh, you know what I mean? So, like, again, hard to see what's going to happen. And I, I'm going to tell you right now, I, I, I don't think – I don't really believe at all that those three teams you just mentioned are going to end up being um, in the in the three of the four in the semifinals. Like if you had to ask me, I, I would think somebody else is going to jump in there. Um, I think it might be one of those three versus somebody else. I mean, I, I can just see it happening. Um, I really can. Yeah, and I completely agree. I think one of those three is getting bounced in the quarterfinals this year. And you look at the way the standings are breaking out. After this weekend, it looks like those are going to be the top three in some order. And then we're looking at Fordham Duquesne in the four five here. So we take those other 10 teams, everyone in the six and below range. Is there a team or a player that you would look at when we, like we just said, one of these big, one of these quote unquote, big three teams is probably going to get bounced early. Is there a team or a player that you have an eye on that could deliver that big upset in the quarterfinals? Well, I mean, you know, George Mason had a lot of expectations on them before the year. And I know Kim English has done a really nice job there. And, and again, it's very difficult to win, but they got a decent record. They're eight and seven. They're right there, you know, right behind Duquesne. Um, LaSalle, I mean, and again, I know they're not high on anybody's radar because they've struggled over the years. Um, Fran Dunphy is pretty unbelievable. <laughs> like one of the best coaches of you know, all time with almost, almost 600 wins. I mean, look what he's done, right? Just to take this team to now all of a sudden be, you know, seven and seven beating teams relevant. They're right there. And then George Washington's got Bishop who's been leading this league and scoring. So I mean, like they're capable. Right. And then, you know, Billy Lang obviously wasn't, you know, I know people are like, Oh, what's going on? Say Joe's like, again, they're right there. They're hanging in there seven and eight. You know, I don't put it past them. I certainly don't put anything past Mark Schmidt. I'm just going right through the list here. Like in Richmond, I know now without, you know, coach Mooney um, and hoping, hoping that they'll rise to the occasion. Right. With that. Davidson, UMass, Rhode Island, and Loyola, Chicago, and no offense to any of those guys right now, but yeah, I, I wouldn't say I, I could see them in that mix. But everybody else that I mentioned just before there, all the way down to maybe St. Bonaventure and possibly Richmond, because Tower Burton is unbelievable um, and capable of going off on any night, too. Pretty open there, right? I mean, that's kind of 11 of the 15. I don't know what you think about that. But. I, I There's one or two that I would... Uh... I'd probably take out of that group. I'm not sure Richmond and St. Joe's have what it takes to go all the way, especially we'll see what happens with the interim, but losing Chris Mooney is a huge blow to a team that's, that's been struggling the last few weeks, regardless, but yeah, I guess I'm not saying go all the way. Cause I agree with you on that. Yeah. I definitely agree with you on that. Um, but making some noise, getting into the semifinals, challenging, maybe even getting to the championship game. I don't know, but um, I, I think people are going to be surprised. I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to say that. We'll see. Yeah. I, I have my eye on probably George Mason and St. Bonaventure out of that group more than anybody, but someone's going to go deep and, and they all really do have a chance, but we'll close it out here. You're UMass alum and you actually, and I, I love this. You have your schedule of upcoming games on your website. And so you're actually going to close out the regular season at the Mullen center back home. It's it's not been a great last few weeks for UMass. They're sitting in 13th. Frank Martin seems to be pretty mad about something every time he goes to the podium. And, you know, the UMass conversations haven't been that fun these last few weeks. So before we close things out, 
Give us a positive that you've seen for the future of this program from afar that makes you believe that your alma mater might be getting back closer to the glory days in the next few years. Yeah, uh, Frank Martin, for sure. And uh, and Derek Kellogg, who's on staff there, was a great player, former head coach, and now an assistant. They're, they're going to be fine. Like, I talked to them before the season started. I went up there in the midseason, talked to Frank Martin um, in the middle of the year. I was up there for, you know, some games and stuff. And uh, I know I know he's going to get this thing turned around. Um, I don't think maybe he realized what, you know, I'm sure he did, but the challenges and stuff that, you know, needs to – to happen there and then and number one get the fans back like i'm i'm thoroughly as a as an alum uh, i'll be honest disappointed and disgusted when i watch a game and i see a ton a ton of empty maroon red seats whatever you want to say there um just unfortunate and i know everybody always thinks like well when you win they come it's like you know what I, I'm not putting this on Martin or the staff or whatever, but you know, I mean, I, I just, as a former alum and loving that school, like I would be knocking on every single door in every dorm room there. I mean, there's almost 30,000 students to go there. You know, I mean, we need your help and support there to help win games and be a part of it. So that being said, that's just a whole nother issue, whether it's in the marketing department or whatever, I'm not just trying to bash people there, but because I love you, but that's a huge thing. You got to separate, you got to look at it like that Two. They've been dealing with a lot of stuff. They've had a lot of injuries. Noah Fernandes has been out. That's their best player, their guard. You know, um, they've lost a couple people to injuries and, and other stuff that they've been dealing with and going through. So in basketball, when you lose one, two, or three guys, um, you know, that is sometimes 20, 25, 30, 40, 50% of your team, you're going to be in a world of hurt. It's not like football where we'll just bring in the backup defensive back and we can mask that situation up and we'll be all right they're going to be okay moving forward. He's not going to recruit better. He'll get some more people out of the portal. He'll figure it out. But, and it's not just because he took South Carolina, the final four, which is about what, five years ago now, 2017, six years ago, he's done it and he knows what it's about and he's been there. So I think like, you know, having a team, knowing the collection of talent, they're going to be all right. Um, I, I expected a little more this year, but with all the injuries and everything that's happened, I'm not surprised, you know, what's going on. So I think in the next few years to come, especially at the portal and what you can do, Frank Martin's going to not, not going to take crap from anybody. I love having Derek Kellogg on the staff. So I think they're going to be okay, but there's a lot that still needs to be done there. Um, I know they're working on it. Um, I'm always respectful and understanding, but yeah, I'd like to see it happen sooner rather than later um, as a lot of the uh, public has since they've only went to one um, NCAA tournament since um, 1998. That was in 2014. So Gotta, gotta work on that. Yeah, and you were there for Camby. You've obviously been in UD Arena, the Siegel Center, all the best places in the A10 over the years, obviously. If the Mullen Center gets rocking, is that right in the top echelon of A10 stadiums? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I always have the number in my head at 9,493 um, is the attendance of the Mullen Center. It's an unbelievable building. We had a blast there. It's super loud. It's super fun. And you're absolutely right. I mean, and we can say that about a couple of arenas, too, by the way. Let's let's take George Mason, for instance, because they're up to around 10,000, too. If they ever had that place packed or whatever, even when it's not, it's hard to win there. Uh, the crowd, uh, the PA announcers in your face, uh, Doc Nix and the Green Machine go crazy in the band. I mean, they're, it's a it's an unbelievable place when that, when that's rocking. So I'd say at George Mason, uh, UMass, almost 10,000 fans. St. Louis is awesome. We know that. A lot of these places are. They really are. I love the Friday night. Everyone's been sold out. They're awesome. Richmond, VCU. Dayton, of course, with the most crowd, the best fans in terms of no matter what kind of year each that team is having, 
love Dayton and their fans. They pack it. It's pretty phenomenal. You know what I mean? And I'm not trying to say they're number one over everybody else, but 13,400 night in and night out, year in and year out, pretty impressive. But to answer your question, UMass will be rocking. It will be an unbelievable place if they ever get that place close to sold out or near that. And I hope they will someday soon. Um, and I'd love to be doing a Friday night game there um, as well. Um, may not be next year, but um, hopefully uh, in a year or so after that, for sure. Yeah, and we know when UMass is great, it's a good sign for this conference. But Mike Corey, the voice of the A-10, thank you for joining me today. We obviously know where to find you on Friday nights, but where can our listeners find you other times of the week? Yeah, um, I try to throw up the schedule. Like you said, you can go to the uh, website. I got a site, MikeCoreySports.com, or uh, just follow me with the Twitter and Facebook and all that. It's just at Mike Corey sports and uh, try to at least get a post out there uh, at least once a week with uh, whatever game we're doing and stuff, um, you know, on the social media. So awesome talk, talking to you too, Todd. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And we'll get to hear you four more times in this a 10 regular season. So plenty of uh, plenty of Mike Corey coming to our ears. Thank you. Thanks a lot. All right. Another thank you to Mike Corey for joining me. Matt is now joining me. We're going to, Take a little dive into the games of last week. Um, not a particularly thrilling week in terms of great games that we're going to remember at the end of the season, but a very important one in terms of the standings starting to parse themselves out. And kind of feels like everyone's just split into their own groups at this point. Yeah, it does. It's still remain pretty bunched up throughout the duration of the season and now with a couple weeks to go, a few teams I think have established themselves as, as being safe for the pillow fight. A couple others jumped into the double buy discussion, but overall, it's it's still going to be pretty close. And there's a lot of teams that even if they aren't competing for a regular season title, there's still a lot of seeding implications over their last three or four games. Yeah, it's kind of four chunks at this point. The top three, and we'll go into that in a second, but. They finally locked down that they are the top three with VCU pounding Fordham, St. Louis winning a buck wild shootout with Duquesne. Those two in Dayton have kind of created a little separation from the next crew, which is Fordham, Duquesne, George Mason. Then you have all the guys in the middle scrapping to avoid the double buy. UMass, Rhode Island, Loyola kind of stuck at the bottom. And I think we all believe Davidson's a better team than those three. But record-wise, the Wildcats have just dug themselves into too deep of a hole. And anything short of four now, I don't think they can get themselves that first round by. And I think with Davidson, this is always the risk the A-10 runs. They gave the Wildcats a really tough schedule. They had to play VCU twice, Dayton twice, St. Louis twice. That's just a, a tough break for a team that ended up not being very good. So the analytics are going to tell you Davidson's a middle of the pack team, but I think a big part of their struggles this year is that they went 0-6 in those games. So if you want to look at a pillow fight team that could maybe have a better chance of winning a few games, maybe you look at Davidson just because they've had to deal with a tougher road than just about everyone else. Yeah, and we feel pretty confident that this is how this is going to break out although i pull up the standings and we're we're filming this before the tuesday night games we both feel decently good that tonight might actually be a rare normal night and that vcu and st louis will come out on top 
obviously if something shifts in that something crazy happens in those games, we will pop back on and talk about that at the end. But just a heads up that we haven't seen those results yet. But just looking at the standings, these Tuesday, Wednesday games, the top five are all on the road. The six current pillow fight teams are all at home. And so we could see an upset or two that starts to shift the balance of power. But I think we're starting to see things break out here. And you mentioned some teams pull themselves into the double buy race. And I assume you're talking about George Mason, who now got up to eight and seven. They're a game and a half back of Fordham for that four spot. They are actually off in this window. I ran through anything short of 3-0 and from the Patriots. I don't think they actually have a chance of the double bye. And it's a pretty tough end of the season. They still have to go at Dayton over the weekend and then play Fordham and Richmond the last week of the season. So they've played themselves into into the race with a three-game winning streak right now. And still, that's good. They're playing better basketball heading into the tournament. But I, I think we at least need to talk about them a little bit, although looks like they do lose the tiebreaker to Duquesne. Haven't played Fordham yet, so. Well, so here's how it goes. I crunched the numbers on this. First of all, they close at Dayton, home Fordham at Richmond. So, yeah, conceivably 3-0 and probably gets them there, but do we really think that this weird inconsistent Mason teams going three and zero Cause I certainly don't. Even if they beat Fordham, it basically becomes impossible for them to get it at 10 wins, whether it's a two team or three team tiebreaker, whether Duquesne or Fordham wins in that last game at Rose Hill, the Patriots are going to lose that tiebreaker every single time because of the fact that Duquesne and Fordham play each other twice they obviously lose the head-to-head to Duquesne. Any three-teamers, they would lose to whoever wins that Duquesne-Fordham game on the last day. So they have to get to 10, and they would need basically whoever wins Duquesne-Fordham to go winless in their other games and for the other one to win just one. Because they'd have to be at 10. Fordham would have to be... Fordham could still be at 10, but Duquesne can't get to that number. So the math is is heavily against the Patriots unless they go 3-0. So I kind of want to just squash that one right now. It, yeah, it's, it's pretty unlikely, but I think that does mean that we have a pretty good chance of another fourth-place Mega Bowl between Fordham and Duquesne on the last day of the season because we're heading toward a pretty likely path where those teams are either going to be tied on the last day of the season or... If Duquesne ends up with the tie, I believe their win over VCU would vault them ahead of Fordham for fourth Maybe. place. So for these, if you're a fan of these two teams now, if you're Duquesne, you need to start rooting for VCU. And if you're a Fordham fan, you need to start rooting for St. Louis. Because if Duquesne does split that season series 1-1, they got to go to second tiebreaker, mm-hmm. record against first place, then second, then third. They're both 0-1 against Dayton. So if the Flyers win the league, that means nothing. Duquesne beating VCU, Fordham beating St. Louis, whoever finishes higher between those two teams ends up with the tiebreaker. Yeah, could happen. If St. Louis wins the conference, they're going to earn it too because they still have to play at VCU and then their senior night is against Dayton. So 
it's possible they they have a tough schedule having to play both of their other top teams but that that would give them a ton of momentum too going into brooklyn by the way there is a completely insane scenario here where if st louis does win their last two the final week so beating vcu and dayton finishing one and one against each of them if they end up tied with the rams and Fordham and Duquesne end up tied. Now we start going to tiebreakers that will be decided based on like who finishes sixth, seventh, eighth, because we'd have to break the first place tie with that. And then we'd have to break the fourth place tie based on who wins the VCU St. Louis tiebreaker. So in the year of chaos, let's actually just all start rooting for that. I mean, that's like, we we were never going to get a year where everyone goes nine and nine. But that's like the next best thing. So definitely could happen. And if it was ever going to, it would be this year. Yeah. And and like, but there's a legitimate universe where, like, where St. Bonaventure finishes in the standings could actually decide the A10 champion this season. See, I love that. Like, in a normal year, we're talking about somebody that's kind of on the bubble, but not really. This year, we just get to have fun with the standings and crazy convoluted tiebreakers and scenarios where anything could happen. And when it's a one-bid year, that, that's what really matters, the seedings and what happens in the tournament. So glad we get to spend a little bit more time on this, and it's actually meaningful. By the way, as I dig into this, if this does happen where St. Louis ties VCU and Fordham ties Duquesne. Almost definitely we end up with St. Louis getting either the one or the two, depending on what Dayton does. And then Fordham getting the double buy because VCU lost to Bonaventure and St. Louis lost to a worse UMass team. So that's actually what it would come down to. It's not nearly as complicated as I was thinking. So I guess if we're, if we're talking about the regular season title though, and we're entertaining the idea that St. Louis does have a chance, which they're only a game behind VCUs who are recording this. And they play each other, so. Yeah, they, they do. But how do you feel about that? Do you think, I mean, right now, the, the Ken Palm, the Torvik, whatever, they're all going to tell you St. Louis isn't on the same level as the other two. Do you feel like they're playing good enough basketball? Did they do enough over the weekend against Duquesne to give you any hope that St. Louis could could end the season on a nice little winning streak. No, because just there hasn't been a point this season where I've felt like they could go 2-0 and in a week against VCU and Dayton. And that's what's going to happen. I, I like I, I feel this, as crazy as this season has been, I feel the exact same way about St. Louis as I did in October. The talent level is basically equivalent to Dayton and VCU, and they match up really poorly to both of them. And that's basically just what it comes down to. They're 0-1 against each of them. They're going to have to beat them both. And I don't think that that's going to happen. And at this point, the regular season title, pretty simply, will probably just come down to if St. Louis can go 1-1 and in those games, which of those two teams beats them? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty much it. Every one of them finishing with a tough schedule against each other, but... So, I mean, I think it's worth talking about. This is a team that went on a six-game winning streak in conference play, so they can get hot. But you do have to wonder just the fact that the VCU and Dayton games were 
two of their weaker performances in the conference season. It is a little bit hard to see them winning both in that final week of the year. Yeah, but let's let's go into the game you just mentioned, St. Louis against Duquesne. A huge win for the Billikens, kind of a kind of a weird game for Duquesne. Um, the Dukes honestly did not play their best game, which you would think that they did putting up 85 points in Chaffetz. But it turned into a weird shootout, basically off the jump, and that obviously helped St. Louis in this season. Duquesne just didn't have their normal inside physicality. Francis Acora was the best big in this game, and that was something that I certainly personally didn't expect. As we've seen over and over again, Acora was wonderful to have when you're playing like a Rhode Island that you can push around. But against these tougher teams, he struggled mightily. He flipped the script in a big way against Duquesne. 14 points, 16 rebounds. But in the end, they won this game. And maybe this is a reason to start to change our thinking on the Billikens. But they won this game because non-conference 2021, Gibson Jimerson, the killer slasher that we saw kill Boise State, that for the month of December of last year looked like a first-team All-A-10 guy. He came back in a big way for the first time all season. Twenty-seven, sorry, 28 points on one made three. That's a guy who turned St. Louis back into that dangerous NCAA tournament team that so many people love going into the season. And I just think that's amazing too. That one three by Jimerson was the only one for the Billikens. They went one for six on the night and still managed to score 90 points against Duquesne, who's been playing better defensively. And I, I feel like I even see all the time St. Louis fans wanting their team to put up more threes. And you would think that's what would work having Jimerson and Perkins and Hargrove, a lot of guys who can shoot pretty well. But yeah, I mean, that's got to be their best offensive performance, at least in conference play. Well, it certainly helps. I've never seen a team make as many contested layups as the Billikens did there. And granted, they were getting, they were kind of just running free to the hoop. And then whoever was the rim protector just had to leap up at the last second. So they were easier shots than they appeared. But just play after play, it was one step out of the lane, banking it in with Reese or Rotrov coming at them. Javon Pickett hit like eight of these. And I know he didn't have enough points for that mathematically to be true, but that's what it felt like during the game. And St. Louis just able to get downhill over and over and over again. And I guess that's what happens when you have Yuri Collins really running things to perfection as he did in this game. Racked up his normal nine assists, but he was really looking to score the ball as well. And that's not always true for Yuri. I mean, maybe we look back and this is just the best case scenario for a bunch of guys on St. Louis. But if you want to look glass half full and say that this team can win in March, they better hope this is a turning point because we just so many of their best players played the quintessential best case game in this one. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a big win for St. Louis. I wouldn't call it a disappointing loss for Duquesne, really. I think they It's even... not, because it's a game they should lose, but they just they didn't play well. No, but now if, if we talk about what this means to them, and I, I think we can throw in Fordham here, because really at this point, I, I think we can lock in the top three 
Duquesne and Fordham are likely going to be playing for that last double buy spot. And Fordham now coming off one of their worst games of the season at VCU where they just could not stop turning the ball over. And VCU played incredible defense throughout. Where do you see these teams heading now? Do you think it's a pretty even battle for Duquesne and Fordham going for fourth place? Or do you feel like one might have the upper hand after what we just saw this weekend? I think it does come down to Rose Hill. The schedules are decently equivalent. Um, So basically for the context here for everybody, Duquesne to have a chance just has to match or better Fordham's record over these next three games. If Fordham plays better than the Dukes, then they actually lock it down before they even get to that last game. But leading into that Fordham at Loyola home, Rhode Island, that's a pretty it's about as good of a week as you can get in this conference right That's now. a good get right week. Yeah, and then a tough one at George Mason. Duquesne doesn't have quite the easy level of games, but they don't have anything as hard as playing at Eagle Bank. They're at LaSalle, and then they get a fairly easy homestand against Davidson and UMass. I wonder just how much to worry about Fordham or even to look into this against VCU if they're just not as good as we thought if it's just an off night similar to they had against, to what the, they had against Davidson in the A10 season opener because they still did win 8 out of 9 this has been an offense that has turned things around from what looked like it was going to be really rough going into the season and suddenly they've been scoring a lot of points defensively they're still sharp as ever but do you take anything away as a big concern against VCU or is it just an anomaly that they turn the ball over more than 20 times and couldn't handle any of VCU's pressure? I take away one thing and I tweeted this out. So you look at, you can go win by win throughout this streak for Fordham more than half of them. They made a big comeback in the second half and I watched basically all of those games and they all followed a very similar theme. The offense comes out super flat in the first half. Second half, they come out, they ratchet up the defensive physicality and pressure to the max. They're forcing turnovers themselves. They're really roughing up the other team. And I honestly think that defensive energy starts to key them on the offensive end. They're playing more loose. They're playing more free. And all of a sudden, they look quicker on offense they look far more confident this game they try to ratchet up the physicality and that whistle was way too tight for them and so i think when we get into the a10 tournament if they're down 10 early and it's a game where both teams are in the double in the double bonus 10 minutes in they're in a lot of trouble now maybe one variable Khalid Moore, like six minutes into the game took an outrageously stupid foul where he just drilled a ball handler in the backcourt and it felt like nothing at the time but it's one that you file away because the way the whistles were going it already popped into my head like okay you don't want this one on your record he ends up getting his second a few minutes later and he just never got going in that game honestly no one ever got going on Ford except Will Richardson who was dynamite but 
if Fordham can't rough up these other teams, especially a team like VCU who's more talented than them, then they can't come back in these games. And I, I feel like VCU is just a tough team to do that against because they get to the line so well. So they're not afraid to take contact and they'll just do it going to the rim. And that's why they attempted 32 free throws in the game. So, yeah, just a, a tough offensive game for Fordham. Richardson was really impressive. He he kept Fordham in the game for a while in the first half. And it was great to see him have one of his better games, even in a losing effort. But I, I just think the other big takeaway and it was fitting that vcu had a bunch of alumni that they honored during the game but havoc was was back and they just it felt like they couldn't let fordham breathe during the game and i i forget exactly what the announcers talked about but it felt like every single dribble was contested and that fordham didn't even have space to blink while they were bringing the ball up the court yeah and one of the other things for fordham in a game like this where you're trying to come back, Quisenberry only having nine shots is not going to win you this game, although he was one of the biggest culprits in the turnover department, so maybe that was a big piece of it. But VCU ends up surviving the gauntlet of Rams. Two wins in Rams versus Rams battles this week. They beat Rhode Island on the buzzer beater earlier from Zeb Jackson, a game where, quite honestly, VCU played like crap. But they had to take the emotional blow of losing Jaden Deloach, what looked like it was going to be for the season when he came out. He ends up missing a half of a game. Um, but for me, the biggest takeaway for VCU, and I'm interested to hear what you came away with this week, but I think they're in a great place right now because we saw great performances from the two quintessential Mike Rhodes types of players. Zeb Jackson, who actually looks semi-confident shooting the ball for the first time all season, and Nick Kern, who put on his best Keyshawn Curry impression in the Fordham game. He had their first, it was either their first 10 or 10 of their first 12 points in that game. All of them just open layups off of just being faster than his defender or just outsmarting them and slipping for a cut. And if those guys start to embrace that kind of Keyshawn Curry think maybe younger Vince Williams before he became a star type of role, then VCU finally has those little side pieces that their offense been missing all year. Yeah, I think you're right. And in terms of Zeb Jackson's confidence, how much higher could it get after making the game winner against Rhode Island, a game where VCU trailed the entire way. They frankly played awful and, really felt like they had no business winning that game on the road, but they, they hung in there. And I think that's one of the keys too to VCU getting back to their ceiling. This is a team that occasionally is going to have to win games ugly and win them with their defense. It's not always going to be aesthetically pleasing for the Rams, but that they found just enough on defense to get it done. And a huge boost to to get Deloach back because, you know, like you said, it looked like he was going to be done and returned and played pretty well against Fordham. Yeah, and by the way, I was so I was watching the end of VCU Rhode Island on my laptop. So smaller screen, I thought Seb Jackson was Jade Nunn on that last shot. That's how clean it looked, and Seb Jackson's jumpers looked awful for most of the season. But God, he is. He's definitely their best bench defender. 
And if he can come up with any excuse for Mike Rhodes to put him on the court more, it really helps that team. My last, my last thing on the, on the top for how much of a bummer this has been. And the fact that none of these teams managed to get in at large, I do feel like VCU St. Louis and Dayton are all playing at least a little bit better right now than they did for most of the season. They're all kind of closing in on their peak right at the right time. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say any of them are like sputtering at this point of the season and running out of gas. Like we haven't really talked about Dayton very much, but they had a, a comfortable win at Loyola on Friday 10. And coming off that, they beat VCU in St. Louis the week before. So Flyers are playing good basketball too. And really, it's not like some seasons there's a, a team coming in on a huge winning streak and is head and shoulders above the rest. I don't really think we have that this year, even though VCU is a game ahead at the moment and looks like the favorite to win the regular season. Any one of these teams seems like they could match up with each other and play a fairly even game. So I guess we'll get a little preview next week too when a lot of them match up against each other anyway. Yes, we will. But any other games you want to talk about here before we, we go into our final little part? Not really. I guess just the only takeaway for Rhode Island, going back to them, they lose Bray on Freeman. He has left the program. And at this point, just a bad offense turns even worse for Archie Miller's team. And I, I just felt like we needed to say this. Are you concerned at all that in his first year with Rhodey, Archie's two big transfers didn't work out because remember he also got anthony harris who never suited up for the rams i have no problem i don't fall archie at all with for the anthony harris thing he had a chance to get a talent that he probably otherwise couldn't so why not just take the chance yeah the freeman thing i and this was pretty clear from the beginning that this that there was tension there i mean it was from I, like second or third getting, game of the year he was getting benched in crunch time of games where he's playing well yeah. And it would basically, he was only getting to close games if he was just clearly one of their two best players on that night. Like the Dayton game where he's just on fire, killing the Flyers defense. But it just never seemed like a good fit. It was, in hindsight, honestly, we probably should have all seen this. This is a guy who was playing on one of the all-time sloppiest teams I've ever seen. That GW crew last season where it's just him, Bishop, Bamisil, my turn, your turn, not actually running real offense. And Archie Miller's not the kind of coach who's ever going to put up with that crap. Mm -hmm. Now, on the flip side, we've seen James Bishop get fixed. Like, Chris Caputo turned James Bishop into a guy who could play a real offense. Archie couldn't do that with Freeman, and it's pretty clear Porter Moser couldn't do that with Bama still down at Oklahoma. So uh, it's just it never felt right here, and I guess Freeman probably will get a waiver because Rhode Island's sure as hell not going to put up any resistance to him leaving. Mm -hmm. I'm sure they'll sign all the paperwork to get him out of there, but we'll see what happens at his next stop. This is a guy who's so talented, but... I fear he's going to a lower level for a coach who's going to be willing to put up with his garbage. He's going to put up great numbers and never get better as a basketball player. 
Yeah, it's just, it's a shame it didn't work out because we saw so much promise last year at GW, but we'll see where Rhode Island goes next year. I'm, I'm sure it's going to be another big retooling year for Archie and he's going to have to bring in a lot of new faces because they're losing Jalen Carey and I guess Leggett, he's only a junior, so he should yeah. be back. But speaking of GW too, I, I think we have to mention probably the game of the week, the Colonials blow. I want to say an 18-point second-half lead. The game goes to overtime in the Riley Center, and somehow, when all the vibes were against them, I feel like it's so hard to win an overtime game after you've just collapsed in the second half. GW holds on with James Bishop hitting three last-second free throws. So, a a nice recovery for them. That's a team that's kind of been struggling the last few weeks, so... Good to see them win in one of the tougher A-10 road environments heading into the tournament. I felt like GW desperately needed that win, especially with the big lead. They were sputtering out, but now on the flip side, St. Bonaventure desperately needs a win going forward because they've lost five straight. But the biggest takeaway from that game is welcome to the Chaos Conference again. We're going to get something like that in one of these like eight, nine, seven, ten games in the A10 tournament. And before we wrap it up, one thing I want to mention, I want to go back to Freeman. And I think we should actually do a retrospective on the preseason predictions at the end of this season. But the four guards on last year's all rookie team, obviously with Deron Holmes, who was an all conference player last year, but all four of those guys end up on preseason all conference. And they've all gone in massively different ways. You have Brayon Freeman at the basement getting kicked off the team. You have Jaden Nunn, who's been a disappointment. Although, since we've started talking about Freeman, Nunn's hit two threes to start the game against St. Joe's. Um, Malachi Smith, who I think at this point it's pretty clear that if he had stayed healthy, was going to be an all-conference guy. But because of the lack of games, it's not going to get there. And then Eric Reynolds, who is a second or third team guy for sure at this point. And I know at least I was the lowest on Reynolds of any of these guys going into the year, just because of the situation. St. Joe's just ended up giving him better quality teammates than I expected. Yeah. It just goes to show in the preseason, you never really know who the breakout players are going to be. Who's going to build on a promising freshman season. And, yeah, Reynolds of all those guys is just having a tremendous year at St. Joe's. So let's close it out here. The pillow fight, as we mentioned earlier, Davidson probably has to win out and get to nine and nine. At this point, nine and nine, I think makes anyone safe. Eight and 10 probably sends you to a tiebreaker of some sort. But we got six teams trying to get four spots to avoid it. LaSalle and GW at seven and seven, St. Bonaventure, St. Joe's seven and eight, Richmond six and eight. Sorry, it's actually five teams trying to get three spots to stay out. I was still including George Mason in there. They're eight and seven. Owen three maybe puts them in danger, but I think the Patriots will find a way to get at least one of those games. So I'm not even going to count them here. Uh, are you not, are you discounting Davidson going four and oh down the stretch? I mean, their toughest game, they do have to go at Duquesne, which is going to be a challenge. But besides that, St. Bonaventure, GW at home, at Rhode Island, the other three are very winnable. I mean, let's say that they do go on the road and beat Duquesne, which is certainly in play. 
I just don't have any confidence that they can then also sweep the bookend of St. Bonaventure and GW. Probably not, but like Davidson's just given us no reason to believe that they could close on a five game win streak unless we were going to throw in at least one more game against Loyola or UMass as well. So right now then with these five teams, do you have any leans on who you're expecting to be safe? Is anyone definitely safe out of that group where you're no, almost certain? Definitely not. None of them should be comfortable. I don't no one really has a schedule edge. Like all their schedules are kind of the same. I think LaSalle probably is the most difficult. They're home for Duquesne. And then they have to go at GW at Dayton. But they also close out with Loyola, and they have that at least half-game edge over everybody else right now. That's that's going to really come in handy for the Explorers. Um, I think Richmond probably has an edge to the bottom. They still got to play St. Louis and VCU. Now, if they could beat St. Joe's at Hawk Hill, that goes a long way, but I'm not sure that would really matter. The Spiders just they're a team that unlike the top three, I feel like I feel like they're playing nowhere near their best basketball as of late. They found it again in that second half against Fordham, but then blowing the GW double overtime game, that was one that they really needed to have to keep the momentum going. Burton has just not shot the ball well, frankly, at all since December. I don't think they know who their point guard is. Jason Nelson's not even playing at this point. They're trying to get Jai Bailey back into that role, but at the same time, it might be Marcus Randolph. And, you know, it, they lose Chris Mooney. And like Mike Corey mentioned earlier, thoughts and prayers to him. I, I've only had the chance to speak with him face-to-face for literally one total minute. I've gotten to talk to him in press conferences before. He's such a nice guy, and anyone who's around him will tell you that, so... Hopefully things end up well for him, but losing him, I think things are going to end up pretty badly for Richmond. I think he's a big reason why they're not a basement team right now. And I just don't believe that the spiders are going to be able to somehow get better after losing him. The only thing I'll say when they have Gustafson, Burton, Bigelow, Grace, all on the court together, they're a pretty good team right now, but I basically don't trust them. If any of those guys are on the bench. Yeah, even though Richmond, like throughout the season, they've probably been better than a lot of these other teams in the group right now, just with everything going against them, it's it's going to be tough. I guess looking at this, I mean, if we're talking about the pillow fight race being this even, going from LaSalle and GW at 7-7 seven and seven down to the bottom, is does that just mean there's a big cutoff in the quality of teams? like between George Mason and the rest when you go from one through six, like do any of these, I don't think there's a quality difference between George Mason and the rest of these guys. I think there's a half a notch difference between Fordham and Duquesne and the rest of them, but no, everything's super bunched up here. And I think if there's a quality difference, it's basically the top three. Then the next nine are all kind of at a similar level with Fordham and Duquesne a little bit above. I think Davidson and Richmond are a tiny bit below. And then the bottom three are all clearly below everyone else right now. 
The, the only other thing I want to throw in here, I think it's the bottom two right now who have, who I'd bet against. St. Joe's has three games left. They probably got to win two of them. They're home VCU at Bonaventure, home Richmond. It's not easy. And we got news while we were recording that Educa Obina is out for the VCU game for reasons that are unclear. If Educa Obina does not play in these three games, they have no chance in hell of getting out of the pillow fight. I think he's so incredibly critical to what they do and to locking down their defense. I think the only, I think if they hadn't put him back in the starting lineup for the Loyola game, they'd be a pillow fight lock at this point. We'd be talking about them in the UMass roadie group than with these guys. he's, He's so important and no one realizes it for this team, but they might stink without him. And I think you pointed it out during the Duquesne game. Looking at St. Joe's, it kind of reminds me of GW last year where it's not a very good team, but they just racked up a lot of conference wins against the worst teams in the conference. I mean, earlier this year, you know, just a a week ago, the streak ended, but St. Joe's won seven out of nine games, and all but two of those were against sub-200 Ken Palm teams, which, to be fair, there's a, a decent number of those in the A-10 right now, but their best win in conference is at George Mason, which is nothing spectacular. And that just doesn't give me any expectation of the Hawks making a run in Brooklyn. Even if they do manage to avoid the pillow fight, like if you're a one or a two seed playing the Hawks on in your first round in the quarterfinals, I'm just not that scared. Yeah. And no, we should actually note they were really bad without Klotchek. And mm-hmm. now he's back. And by the way, this team is basically their starting five. I actually now believe that Rashir Fleming's going to continue to give them some really good minutes down the He's stretch. Been good. But on the flip side, I've lost confidence that Christian Winborn's going to give them good minutes. So it's kind of just those six and like the one every four games where Charles Coleman plays well the 10 minutes he's out there. But yeah, I, I think the Hawks' flaws will start to expose them. I'm taking St. Joe's in Richmond down there, but look out for LaSalle just because that schedule's so tough. And God, St. Bonaventure's on a five game losing streak. And I'm, I'm like almost not even entertaining in my head, the idea that they'll fall down there, but yeah, I just didn't... feel like, the, I just feel like the Bonnies are going to turn things around here. And it, they only got to grab two wins here at Davidson home, St. Joe's at UMass. That's easier than any of these other teams are looking at right now. Well, there's a lot on the line for St. Bonaventure, too, because they are the only, I believe, the only A-10 team that has double-digit wins in each season since the 18-game schedule came out. Now that I say that out loud, I feel like Davidson might have done it every year but the COVID year. But, yeah, I mean, it's it sure didn't look like St. Bonaventure would be flirting with the Tuesday round. and. Here we are. I mean, that that loss against GW put them back in this discussion where they had a chance to pretty much solidify a top half finish, and it looks in doubt right now. And by the way, yes, you are right, because the last time they failed to win 10 games, they went 6-10 and 10 in the last 16-game season. And they are the only team to get 10 the last five years 
let alone the fact that this mark is actually over the last eight. And if you want some perspective on that, um, that 2014 St. Bonaventure team that went six and 10, they would pretty clearly be a double by team in this A10. They were 84th in Ken Palm. So not, not even bad. Yeah, that's just where the year is. But any parting thoughts here? We've gone on probably a little longer than we intended. So hopefully everyone's stuck with us for this. Yeah, not much. We'll see if we finish recording this and there's a big surprise waiting for us at the end. But otherwise, just another week closer to Brooklyn. Looking forward mostly to the big games next week with the top three teams. So we get a little preview, but it'll just be interesting to see how this conference race plays out and see who can play themselves out of the pillow fight this week. Yeah, and I'll throw in one little gem here. For anyone who is still listening, you'll get rewarded. I'll tweet them out when I I get the exact pairings figured out. But the announcer, the announcing crews for the three pillow fight games are going to be the best we've seen this entire season. So just be excited for that. I, I got... One little piece left I still have not fully figured out here. I'll send it out when I do, but I know we're not going to be in Brooklyn till day two. Most people will not be there. We will be rewarded in the pillow fight with some of the best that this conference has to offer. And hint, hint, most of them have been heard on this show before. So get ready for that. Yeah, can't wait. I think that's a pretty big hint when we're when the two of us are talking about or when we're excited about an announcer, I think that should give it away. But yeah, I can't wait for the, the Tuesday round. That's the big, biggest thing to be excited about that day. Yeah, and the games might actually be good too, but we shall see. Thank you all for listening to this episode of the 3 Bid League Podcast. Another big thank you to Mike Corey for joining me earlier. If you enjoyed the show, please give us five stars on iTunes. If you're not already, please follow us on Twitter at the number 3 Bid League Pod. We're going to have episodes coming at you fast and furious here. Um, Maybe one more this week. Probably depends on how the Wednesday games go. But we will definitely be back Monday morning, probably with two episodes for you in that final regular season week. So everyone get ready. We got a lot of great stuff coming for you here in these final weeks of the season. So if you're listening at this point, then you know by now, St. Louis blew a double-digit lead against Richmond. And you know what? I didn't feel like it was the best idea to go back and 
edit out the discussions we had where we assumed that St. Louis was going to win this game because it really drives home how bad and, quite frankly, how ridiculous of a loss this was. Not that a top three team went on the road and lost to what is currently a pillow fighter. That's happened plenty of times this year. But St. Louis had full command of this game. There's really no question about it. it somewhere between the under-16 and the under-12 media timeout, it, it kind of slowly started to shift, but even coming out of that under-12 minute mark, it, it still felt like it was a 99% Billikens game. And we've seen this too many times with St. Louis. And there's a lot of little things that you can look at, but really the two main points, the defense has never been that good for this team, and we knew that coming into the season. And once again, Travis Ford just showing that he's not a particularly good late-game adjustments coach. Something that we've seen in the past, and it came back to kill them again in this game. But the biggest things, they were dominating this game because Yuri Collins was basically just controlling the Richmond defense at will. He was in full-fledged point-god territory, going wherever the hell he wanted. He was seeing every pass and slipping it in through traffic. And... Then all of a sudden, they kind of stopped. And the biggest thing is a lot of guys with mostly open shots started missing hoops. But Richmond did a good job in the final 10 minutes of the game closing off those passing lanes for Collins, leaving him in one-on-ones. And, you know, he, 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 he just needed to shoot more than eight times in this game. He was getting to the rim at will, and I get that he's aiming to be an unselfish player, but late in that game, no one was finishing for them except for Perkins. And I really think they needed to steal a Collins layup or two and really kind of illustrate the the shift in this game. I don't have the exact time marks of the clock. I have rough estimates, but I do have the time marks on the real clock in the form of tweets I sent out and at 8.47, 8.47, we were at about five, six minutes left in this game. Collins was still just kicking ass all over the place. He was at 17 assists. He didn't get another one. At 8.08 p.m. Eastern, Gibson Jimerson was at 17 points. He was absolutely on fire, continuing a trend we've seen for weeks now. I was already, I was waiting for one more bucket so I could fire out the stat that Jimerson would have, at that point, had 20-plus points in five of his last six games. He was sitting at 17 at that point. We were, we'd just come out of the under-16 timeout. He took one more shot. Not made one more, which he did make it. He took one more shot. He was 7 of 11. First 24 minutes of that game, 1 for 1 in the last 16. And we can harp on St. Louis's defense all we want. 
because it's let them down time and time again throughout the season. And it did again in this game. They held Tyler Burton to two points through that same 24-minute period. And then Burton had 18 in the final 16 minutes. He, he absolutely murdered them. And look, they lost this game on defense. But we can't ignore the fact that if they had managed to find two or three more somewhat easy buckets, the buckets that they were getting all game in those final six minutes, then the defensive collapse really doesn't matter. The way they were playing, they should have cruised to 85, 90 points. And that would have been enough, despite the fact they gave up 54 in the second half. Richmond was 17 of 37 from three. This isn't new. Duquesne just absolutely slaughtered them from three three days ago. But in that game, St. Louis was so good getting to the hoop that they survived. And in this game, Collins was the only one who could get there. And... It wasn't enough. This is I, this is a terrible loss, and I'm rambling like a like a guy on a spaces right now. More like a, a, a distraught fan than an analyst or a reporter, but that's how devastating this was for St. Louis. Their regular season title hopes are dead. Mathematically not, but they'd have to go three and zero, which would include winning at VCU and at home against Dayton. And they would need VCU to drop one of their other two remaining games. And look, that's just not happening. Now we got to flip it around. They're only a half game up of Fordham for third. All of a sudden, the idea of St. Louis falling out of the double bye is in play again. And, and losing to Fordham looms large in that discussion for two different reasons. Obviously... If somehow Duquesne were to jump them, which is unlikely, they would drop the tiebreaker to the Rams. But if Duquesne can win at Rose Hill in that last game, like we keep talking about, all of a sudden we could be looking at a scenario where, let's say St. Louis does drop those two tough games to close the season. The Dukes could jump them. They could certainly still be tied with Fordham. This is... I mean, not that far-fetched of a scenario. This is a 4-0 from Duquesne. Fordham manages to go 2-2. Two and two. Now them and the Billikens are both sitting at 11. And now Fordham's the four seed. And you obviously always want the double bye, but I don't want the five seed right now. Because Davidson is really dangerous. Just kind of lurking as that 12. Like, normally, you end up with the five, you get to play some crap team in the first round, and you basically cruise through. And maybe you still do. Maybe you catch Rhode Island after the Rams happen to play a good game, and any of these three teams would probably rock the Rams in that situation. But, God, the difference between getting a bye and playing Foster Lawyer in what could be his last college game, playing Sam Benenga, maybe it's the night that either... Cochera or Grant Huffman goes off? That's a big, big, big difference. And that's what St. Louis has to grapple with now. It's a bad loss. It's all there is to it. 
And on the positive side for Richmond, what a last 14 minutes for this team. They've been collapsing over the last month. They just lost their coach to a heart problem. I can't imagine how rough things were in the locker room and at practice for those players the last few games. Like, this is a tough, tough situation for the Spiders. And two guys really deserve an incredible amount of credit for this turnaround. Obviously, the interim head coach, Peter Thomas, who pressed all the right buttons at the end of this game in his first ever head coaching game at the college level. And one of the biggest things, going back to Jason Nelson, who had just completely fallen out of the rotation for the Spiders in the last few games. Eight minutes against Loyola, 10 against GW. He only played 20 against Fordham because Jai Bailey was in terrible foul trouble that night. Nelson responds with 17 points. He was huge for them in, cl- in crunch time. Obviously, he's the guy who banked in the three that put the game out of reach. But the other guy is Matt Grace. Because when St. Louis jumped out to that big double-digit lead, it took a while for Richmond to actually launch the comeback. They just kind of hung around. And early in that second half, Grace was the reason that they hung around. The reason that we started to see cracks in the foundation of the St. Louis defense. She just kept finding open shots. He was the guy who was starting to eke his way into those gaps. He ends up with 18 points on the day. He has just played a fantastic February. He's the biggest reason why Richmond has managed to really hang around in the season and not just collapse and make that bottom four into a bottom five. But it was a three-pointer to start the second half that kind of opened things up for them. He ended up hitting two more jumpers, another three, and a, a long two before things really got going. But those eight points were so, so critical for Richmond being able to spark this comeback. He was the guy who poured the gasoline on the firewood. And then Tyler Burton and Jason Nelson dropped the match. This is a great win for Richmond on the flip side. They were dead to rights headed to the pillow fight before this game, and they still might be. There's, as we, as we speak right now, they're still sitting in one of those spots. And they got a tough climb to go to get out of there. But tonight leaves the door open for that. And incredible credit to the Spiders, not only getting up for this game in a tough situation, but finishing the deal after really getting smacked around early on. It was a fun game, and it was worth this time. So we will see what Wednesday brings, but things should continue to be fun. A uh, quick shout-out to VCU. They made quick and easy work of St. Joe's today. Career game from Jaden Nunn, 31 points, 12 of 13 shooting. And it would have been more, but he didn't play much in the late second half. Because VCU had such a huge lead. They absolutely pounded the Hawks. St. Joe's defense is just really bad without Educa Obina. 
And so hopefully for sake of them, they get him back very, very soon. But it was a fun Tuesday. We'll see what Wednesday brings here. Hopefully that will be fun as well.